You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we are joined by Jen Blau, licensed professional counselor and host of the Compassion Fatigue podcast. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And Jen has a couple of areas of specialty that are particularly interesting for us. The first of which is working in the area of compassion fatigue, which a lot of therapists run into kind of the secondary trauma or burnout that really takes a toll on our work. The second area of her practice is in working with animal welfare professionals, and we're going to get into really developing a hyper niche and how she's gone about building her practice on that. So first, Jen, can you tell us a little bit about compassion fatigue and what some of the warning signs might be? Sure. So, I mean, I I first really want to say that compassion fatigue is really just a normal occupational hazard of, you know, working with others who are suffering or who have been traumatized. So it's kind of just inherent in the helping fields. Some of the symptoms, it's a pretty exhaustive list, so I'll I'll kind of give you the highlights. (laughs) So I think one of the most common and troubling are symptoms of depression. So when we talk about depression, the sadness, the loss of interest in, in things you once found pleasurable, kind of dragging yourself around all day, those feelings of hopelessness, We can also experience uh, some anxiety. So this could be either physical or mental anxiety. So for example, physical anxiety could look like rapid heart rate, shallow breathing, shaking, trembling. Mental anxiety can look like these racing thoughts, feeling nervous, feeling on edge, feeling worried all the time. Another very common symptom or warning sign can be feelings of anger. So in the animal welfare field, this can be especially directed toward the public, right? So these people see a lot of animal abuse and neglect and can become a bit jaded and angry. This is actually my personal favorite symptom, Mm -hmm. uh, along with depression, is is the (laughs) anger. (laughs) Favorite Um, symptom, that's funny. (laughs) Um, We can see a lot of sleep and appetite problems, so hypersomnia, which of course is sleeping too much, insomnia, sleeping too little. Sometimes we stress eat, we maybe lose our appetite. It can start to affect our self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times helpers get their value from the help they give. And when people feel like maybe they're not doing enough, uh, their self-esteem can oftentimes suffer. And a very extreme symptom and and type of compassion fatigue is essentially losing your compassion, Mm. your ability to feel, right? You you become numb. Yeah. You can also have like, you know, and this might sound, wow, this sounds a lot like PTSD, right? So we can have some nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, relationship conflicts, can even turn into unhealthy coping skills like We see some addiction, substance abuse in the field, isolation from others, and even on a very extreme 
outside of this, some suicidal thoughts. We have definitely lost some people due to extreme compassion fatigue. Oh my goodness. Suicide. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. You're, you're singing my tune, Jen. <laughs> you and I have talked <laughs> about this on your podcast. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely am with you on how important it is that people understand what's happening when, when there's compassion fatigue or the types of what I call sacrificial helping that goes on. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think it's, it's so critical to really understand what's happening because even as therapists, we can sometimes miss that we're losing our compassion. We can just feel overwhelmed and keep running. And so I love that you were able to share that list because I think a lot of people won't necessarily identify, hey, I've got compassion fatigue. They just think like, oh, I'm burned out or oh, I'm tired or oh, yeah, I just got to keep hustling until the holidays or oh, I have to keep doing this till you know the next break. And it can be something that can get really dangerous, it sounds like. How did you start focusing on compassion fatigue? Well, so, so first of all, I, I just want to add one quick thing because I think you brought up something important that people don't always recognize when they're suffering from compassion fatigue. This is not a dichotomous thing, right? It's not mm. like you either have it or you don't. Yeah. It's, it can ebb and flow and it, it usually kind of lies somewhere in this gray area and, and this can vary in intensity from day to day. So it's not like, oh, I have compassion fatigue, now I don't. <laughs> right? It's not yeah, like that's a, a really good point. Really good point. So I first decided that I would become the poster child uh, for compassion fatigue. <laughs> Pre- preach <laughs> what you know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was such a good time. I wanted to share, share the love. So <laughs> I have been struggling with compassion fatigue, oh gosh, uh, I'd say at least 20 years. And it wasn't about... It's about five years ago when I actually learned that it was even a thing, mm. right? So I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, well, you know, uh, self-disclosure here, I, ha- I do have a history of uh, depression. So I thought, well, you know, it's, it's just my depression flaring mm-hmm. up or I'm weak, right? I can't yeah. handle mm-hmm. this. So I just kind of did a lot of self-blame and internalizing it. So it wasn't until I went back to grad school to study psychology that they started talking about this thing called compassion fatigue and how therapists have to protect themselves from it. And the light bulb just went, oh my, it's screaming at me. (laughs) It's like, Jen, this is what you've been struggling with all along. It wasn't the depression. It wasn't that you are weak or you can't hack it. It's that you had compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, if I was suffering from compassion fatigue, because I don't know if your listeners know this, I have a history of working in in the animal welfare field. Mm. If I was struggling with this, well, then other people are too. And so I really kind of wanted to make sure that when I graduated, I dedicated at least part of my practice to this population. I think that therapists in general can be kind of resistant to the idea that they're going through something that just kind of having either other professionals as you're networking or even clients checking in on you saying, are you okay? And you're just kind of in this position of like, no, it's just that nobody understands me and I'm having a hard time sleeping and I'm eating too much and I get no joy out of anything that I ever do that you're kind of in that yeah, maybe maybe something is hard. So the the continuum on the other end of this is something that you refer to as compassion satisfaction. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so what we know about compassion fatigue, there there are several buffers against 
compassion fatigue or, or ways of managing this, again, very normal cost of caring, quote unquote. Two of them are self-care and support. The third one is compassion satisfaction. Compassion satisfaction is really one of the biggest buffers against compassion fatigue and burnout. And it's basically the joy you get from your work, right? It's the reason that you get up and go do the work every single day. It's those little victories that sometimes people can lose sight of because they're so overwhelmed by the trauma, by the grief, that they lose sight of those little victories. So for example, in animal welfare work, it can be, you know, rather than focusing on the 10 dogs that you put down that day, it can be focusing on the two that got forever homes. I love that. I love that there's a way to really focus on the positive work because yeah, I think there's a a negativity bias that we have, the things that are tough for us, the things that are traumatic for us, the things that aren't working, we often focus on that. But if we can focus on why we're doing the work and the small victories, as you call them, I think it can be really powerful in increasing our our hope and our optimism and our, as you call it, compassion satisfaction. That's I love that. So you've got this market of working with animal welfare professionals. This is like a really specific market. How did you get into this? (laughs) You know, it it is a very narrow market, but one that I feel is really underserved. Something else that I specialize in, and again, this was based on my own personal experience, is pet loss grief. So very, very specific, narrow niches. But, you know, I also work with clients that are struggling with depression, anxiety, trauma, human-related grief. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because when, quote-unquote, normal clients see my profile, they'll they'll comment, they'll say, oh, you know, I, I see that you love animals. Oh, and I see that you have this pet loss certification. I think that's so cool. I love animals too. So that's why I called you. So I'm not, I don't specifically only focus on those two areas, but I do make sure that I dedicate a good part of my practice to that area. Yeah, it seems to me that what you're talking about is something that a lot of people get worried about. Your marketing and your podcast and all of that stuff is focused on animal welfare and your social media and that stuff is really focused on animal and pet loss and that kind of stuff. And it's very focused. It's very specific to an area that you have personal specialty and personal experience in. And so you're speaking to those folks, but like we all know, those of us who have, you know, pretty specific target markets, other people find us and and they still love that we have these other specialties. They still are able to come and work in our practice without fitting the exact mold of the person that we're talking to in our marketing. And I think that's really good to hear. Yeah. I mean, again, they, they see that I love animals and they say, well, gosh, you know, I just, I have a dog or I have a cat and you just seem like a really good fit, even Mm -hmm. though they might not be presenting with animal welfare-related issues or pet loss grief-related issues, they still feel like I'm someone who can relate to them and help them. For the clients that you work with that are animal welfare folks, the people who have those issues, what, how does the work look different? What does the specialty look like? You know, Because it's so interesting because I think you said they are underserved and it, it's not a population that I have a lot of familiarity with. 
Sure. So, you know, again, not only do I see clients that have their own primary trauma histories, because trauma is one of the uh, areas of specialties that I have, but animal welfare folks also present with, and you brought this up at the beginning of the show, a lot of secondary or vicarious trauma. And of course, therapists are all too familiar with, with that, mm-hmm. right? So for example, if maybe you work with cops, firefighters, CPS workers, for example, right? You're going to hear a lot of secondary trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you work with paramedics, nurses, doctors, and, and they occasionally may come in with stories of, you know, how they lost a patient, Right. I think what makes my clients a bit unique, there's many things, but quite often they face this moral dilemma of having to, at their hands, end the lives of the very population they are trying to protect. And they have to do this multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. So if you're a veterinarian, this could mean euthanizing your own patients multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. If you are a shelter worker or an animal control officer, this could mean euthanizing perfectly healthy animals. This could mean euthanizing um, animals that are so abused and neglected they're too far gone. I think another thing that makes this different is my clients live their passion, right? So they don't just clock out at the end of the day. A lot of them, they get off work and they they continue that helping role like 24-7. Some foster homeless animals when they get home. Some Mm -hmm. are animal rights activists and they live a vegan lifestyle. And so this kind of trauma and grief just surrounds them, right? They can't drive by a Taco Bell without being reminded of that kind of mass scale grief, um, at least in their world. And so they rarely get a break from helping. They rarely get a break from trauma. They rarely get a break from grief. And so I think that's what makes them unique. What kind of advice do you have for therapists who might want to work with this population? I have to imagine that this extends beyond, well, I like animals. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I I think it's very, so I I guess I want to say uh, a couple of things. So I've had clients come to me and say, well, I was seeing a therapist, but I felt that I had to edit myself in front of them. I felt like I really had to hold back. And this could be for a number of reasons. So I've heard everything from, I make my therapist cry, which you should never, as a client, you know, you, you know, as a client, you should never have to worry about protecting your therapist's feelings. That's for the therapist to handle on their own. Yeah. They'd say, you know, I I have these stories that I need to tell my therapist and they they cringe or they cry or they change the subject. Oh wow. Be- yeah, because they're too uncomfortable hearing it and so again the client feels like they have to edit themselves and really kind of uh filter what they say and don't say to the therapist and that's not what therapy is all about. Not at all. That's so yeah. interesting that th- I think there's a visceral reaction that a lot of us have mm-hmm. to animals being hurt or or some of the different topics that I'm assuming the animal welfare professionals would bring in. And the fact that therapists are not managing their own emotions around that suggests that maybe it really is a specialty that needs a different a different hand <laughs> in it. 
Yeah, and I think it's very important, to, at least for my clients, that they they know that I have been in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so they know that they are talking to someone who gets it, right? So when they talk about, oh, this is what I had to do today, this is what I saw today, you know, I mean, does it bother me? Of course it bothers me. You know, I'm, I'm not cold-hearted, I'm not numb, but I can sit there and go, yeah, mm-hmm. Like I, I've, I've been there. I get that. You know, t- tell me more about that. And I'm not going to run away crying or I'm not going to shut them down and avoid going there with them because like, yeah, I've, I've pretty much been through everything they're talking about. And then I, I think the other thing I wanted to mention is people often don't understand why anyone would want to see specifically a vegan therapist because I think they equate the word vegan with well, you just eat weird things. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I equate it to people that want to see specifically a Christian counselor mm. or a man counselor or a woman counselor, right? It's it's someone that they feel shares their values and is not going to, I guess, invalidate their beliefs because for many vegans, it's a form of spirituality. It's not just a diet. I think it was off the show that you had mentioned you have a couple of certifications that kind of help cater to the types of clients that you work with. So what kind of special trainings do you have? Sure. So I've been training uh, with the Green Cross. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's uh, through Charles Figley, who is the Compassion Fatigue Guru. Um, And I've had several courses through them, and I'm currently a certified Compassion Fatigue therapist. And then I'm also a certified pet loss grief recovery specialist. What kind of trainings go into uh, compassion fatigue and pet loss grief recovery? What kind of tra- what kind of trainings did you have to do to get those certifications? Sure. So these uh, both certifications are through online schools. For the pet loss grief recovery specialist, you have to, I think the certification lasts about four years and you have to have a certain amount of hours each four years, something like 500 hours of pet loss related therapy or work in order to be recertified. And the compassion fatigue training, this is basically one of the courses that if you continue the whole track, it basically leads to certified traumatologist. And at that point, you can be deployed with the Green Cross as a field responder, a a certified traumatologist, and you can go into these hurricane, fire, any type of disaster zone as, as a volunteer and basically provide compassion fatigue and mental health support to the first responders. That is super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to this and I, I just am so struck with how how deep your focus and training is. And I understand that as someone who kind of has ongoing, you know, dealings with compassion fatigue, the training that you've put in, all of those things, that that there's probably some some favorite tips on on how to really take care of yourself and manage uh, compassion fatigue. What is your favorite tip? Going to try to to manage this thing. <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. And this, you know, this is something that I struggle with. Uh, every single day trying to incorporate self-care into my own life. Um, you know, I run a business and so it's it's tough. But I think it's really important for people to recognize that self-care is not like a one-dimensional type thing. So people think, oh, exercise, nutrition, sleep, I'm good. That's physical self-care. 
right? So we can have physical self-care. We can have spiritual self-care. We can have social self-care. We can have psychological self-care. And so I try to kind of pull from each of those dimensions. Some of my favorites, I love walking. I love walking my dogs out in nature. I enjoy yoga, whether it's a class or, you know, me up in my bedroom just watching a YouTube video. I like to get a massage every now and then. I think body work is really important for releasing the toxins in your body that can build up from all this vicarious trauma that you're hearing. Because, you know, my clients are struggling with trauma and vicarious trauma. Now I am going to be vicariously traumatized. And so I have to take care of myself and build up the resiliency as well. I have a vegan diet, so I eat pretty well. Music has saved my life more than once, so that's definitely a form of self-care for me. But I'd say my favorite form of self-care is just, I have nine rescued animals and just spending time with them is very, very therapeutic for me. Nine animals. That seems like there would be a lot of care required for those animals. There is a lot of care, um, but there's also a lot of reward and compassion satisfaction. Awesome. So you've mentioned that you have a background in working with animal welfare. I'm assuming that that very much guided you into the types of clients that you're working with. What was your What was your first career? What was your pre-therapist life? So I've had a few lives, um, but before <laughs> before I became a therapist, I'm aging myself there, aren't I? Before I became a therapist, I, I did work in animal welfare. So I mean, it really started kind of as a passion, not a, not a career, but I started as a child, became vegetarian, probably around 10, 11, 12. And I attended my first animal rights protest with my activist grandmother, very hip lady. So she was a huge influence on me. I later became vegan in my early 20s. And that's when I encountered compassion fatigue at first. I was very, very traumatized by all the research I was doing, all the videos that are out there. And, and I, I basically was educating myself to the point of traumatizing myself rather than empowering myself. And back then, I didn't know what it was. So in order to deal with it, I thought, well, I'm just going to do even more. I'm going to throw <laughs> myself in, in, in this. You know, you, you'll see people that do this. I'm just going to basically, instead of feeling, I'm just going to work. So as long as I'm working, I can avoid feeling. Mm. So I decided to work at the local shelter. And so there I did everything from intake and adoptions to wildlife management and euthanasia technician. I also, at one point, was an animal control officer. And after burning out for the last time, that's when I went back to grad school. And again, that's where I learned about compassion fatigue. And I decided right then and there, you know, I'm, I'm going to really give back to this, to this community who are underserved, overworked, underappreciated, underpaid and totally misunderstood. I think it's so interesting. You were talking about kind of researching yourself into trauma. And I think that is something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. It can be really easy to go down the rabbit hole in social media, in Google research, in YouTube videos. You know, we can, we can keep going down the rabbit hole 
how do you, I mean, how do you recommend people stop doing that? Cause I, I know for myself, I try to just have people say like, Hey, you know, stop researching. <laughs> like, you know, let's, let's, let's pull back a little bit, but is, are there any tips on that one? Yeah. So I have people that say, well, if I stop researching, if, if I ignore this, then that means I don't care. And that means that I remain ignorant. And I say, no, no. The point is, first of all, you know, if you're coming to me as an animal welfare professional struggling with compassion fatigue, you know what's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're educated. But I always say to people, educate yourself enough to become empowered. When, this, when it starts to tip and you start to venture over into trauma land, that's when you need to pull back. Because, you know, like me, I was, when I did sleep, which was rare, I was having horrible, horrendous nightmares. And when I was lying in bed, I was having horrific, intrusive thoughts. So I wasn't sleeping. And you all know what kind of havoc that can create, you know, what yeah. cycle that can start. And so I burned out. If you're going to burn out and not be effective, what is the point in educating yourself? So again, you got to educate yourself just enough to become empowered to do something, but don't do it to the point where it becomes an obsession and to where you start to hurt yourself. That's where you really need to draw the line. And it's tough. And I imagine that there's an area in there of, especially in activism or care, trying to drive a cause where you're finding yourself frustrated with other people not caring as much as you do and really taking that badge as needing to be the martyr in driving a cause even further. Yeah, I think there's the, there's an attitude of, I'm the only one that cares this much, therefore I need to basically save the world. And that really is a recipe for burnout. And again, you know, just using my own personal example, if you are angry all the time, if you are depressed all the time, if you have totally isolated and alienated yourself from everyone else, now you're not getting the social support, you're not getting breaks with friends and family, you're not taking the time to take care of yourself because, you know, and I was like this too, well, I can't go on vacation because I won't be caring for animals. I felt guilty when I was at work because of my animals at home. And I felt guilty when I was with my animals at home because I wasn't with the animals at work. So it was a lose-lose situation. And the only person that lost was me. And Mm -hmm. in the long run, if I continued that in the long run, then the animal care is going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. And pretty soon you you start to see people who are so burned out. And you see this in therapy as well. For sure. But you start to see people who are so burned out, they become numb. Now they're either going through the motions at work and they're cutting corners and they're not providing the right kind of care. Again, both in animal welfare or therapy, right? Or kind of the opposite extreme, they they leave the field altogether, yeah. never to return. I think that's such a, an important lesson. And I am so appreciative of the time you've spent with us today, because I think when we really dig into compassion fatigue, and when we look at how it can impact the people we work with, like animal welfare professionals or ourselves as therapists, I think it becomes so important how critical it is that we take care of ourselves, that we understand how this process works. And and like you said, it's a continuum, not, you know, you have it or you don't, but being able to really build the resilience that we need so that we can keep doing this work because this work is really, really important. These people, these animals need our help. And if we don't 
really take care of ourselves, we could end up doing poor work or no work at all. Absolutely. Our guest today is Jen Blau. She can be found. Where can we have people find you and your work? Sure. So I have two websites. The website that is devoted to animal welfare work and the podcast is thecompassionfatiguepodcast.com. My general practice is Deepwater Counseling, and you can find me there at deepwatermichigan.com. And we'll include those links in the show notes as well. And please visit our website, mtsgpodcast.com. Follow us on social media and check out our upcoming live events in the Los Angeles area coming up in 2018. We have a law and ethics event for master's level licenses in California coming up in May and the therapy reimagined conference in October where we're really continuing on a two day conference of 14 CEUs talking about the personal professional practicing well-being of therapists. So until next time, I'm Kurt Withhelm with Katie Vernoy and our guest, Jen Blau. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.